From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. It's one of the most important and influential elected positions in Multnomah County. Before this month's Oregon primary, only two men have held the position of district attorney in the county for nearly four decades. Current DA Rod Underhill is retiring, and on May 19th, voters chose the candidate to replace him who promised major reform in the DA's office and in the criminal justice system. Mike Schmidt beat out opponent Ethan Knight, who billed himself as the establishment candidate. It wasn't even close. Schmidt won with nearly 77% of the vote. Schmidt will become the new district attorney in January. In just a moment, he'll join us to tell us his plans to reform the DA's office. Then another significant win, this one in the Tri-County area of Multnomah, Washington, and Clackamas counties. Amid our health and economic crisis, Almost 58% of voters approved a new tax for higher income earners for some and small businesses to provide services for people who are homeless or at risk of experiencing homelessness. We'll hear how the measure is intended to help and ask questions critics had about accountability, how much of the money will go to administration, and how many people will actually be helped out of homelessness. First, welcome to my guest, Multnomah County District Attorney-Elect, Mike Schmidt. Welcome to Straight Talk and congratulations. Hey, thank you, Laurel. Happy to be here. Mr. Schmidt, you were gracious in your victory. You commended your opponent, Ethan Knight, for a well-run race, one that you said was competing philosophies were involved, but it was a landslide victory. What message do you think that resounding win says for voters? What do they want from the district attorney's office? I think what it said to me was that people are ready for a change, uh, that the way that we've been doing things in our criminal justice system uh, writ large is just not working. Uh, we see all kinds of issues, whether it's disparity in our criminal justice system, how you know, black and brown people are treated, or whether it's the fact that our jails and prisons have become our largest homeless shelters and mental health and addiction treatment facilities. I think people could just identify that the way that we've been doing things for a long time isn't working. You take office in January. What is the first thing that you want to change? The first thing that I'm going to look at uh, is a lot like what I've done at the state level uh, in my directorship at the Criminal Justice Commission, uh, which is we got to increase transparency in the criminal justice system. So much of what we can do and accomplish for public safety is built on trust. Uh, and so for me, what I want to do is I want to make the data in the district attorney's office public and available online 24-7 on dashboards so that people can see what crimes are being arrested, who's coming into our system for those crimes, and how are people being treated as they go through our criminal justice system. From there, a lot of the reforms can really start to roll. And talking about reform, you've talked about something called restorative justice. What does that look like and what kinds of cases might fit that model? Yeah, uh, restorative justice is a philosophy that's been around for a long time. Uh, people trace it back to Aboriginal populations in New Zealand, Native American populations here uh, and where we live. Uh, and so it's, it's not a new concept, but the idea really is how do you heal the harm caused. Uh, and so that's the focus. And it also recognizes that in a lot of ways, our criminal justice system is not focused on healing the harm. Uh, it could be focused on uh, punishment or, or retribution. 
but not always focus on how do you heal what happened. So for me, uh, I think there's a great opportunity and a challenge uh, in what we have with the COVID crisis and not having, we're looking at terrible budgetary times uh, that we're going to have to get creative on how we handle a huge backlog of cases. And I think asking that fundamental question, how do we heal the harm, could be at the root of how we can handle a lot of those cases, maybe even outside of our criminal justice system. And you also want to decrease disparity in the criminal justice system. How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's something I have some experience with. Uh, at the state level, what we did was we looked at certain laws and policies and saw who is being prosecuted for these crimes. I'll give you an example. Uh, possession of controlled substance uh, means if you possess any user amount of heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, uh, an illicit substance like that. We looked at nationally the data about who uses drugs in our community. And what we found is that whether you're white, Latinx, black, Asian, we all use drugs at relatively similar rates. Then we looked at who's being prosecuted for possessing drugs in our criminal justice system, and we saw a lot of disparity. So what we did was we took that information to the legislature and to stakeholders, and we got the law changed to say, we are making certain communities disproportionately felons for a crime that we know is being committed at the same rates uh, across all different ethnicities. Let's change that and bring it down to a misdemeanor level so at least we are mitigating that harm. I want to do the same thing at the district attorney's office. I want to look at what crimes are being referred to our office and who is being referred for those crimes. And then it really starts asking the next question, which is, why is there disparity in this? Uh, and it leads to the next inquiries. And it could be policy changes. It could be advocating law changes. Uh, but fundamentally, it should help us get to the roots of why are we seeing disparity in how people are treated in our system? Let's talk about what's happening this week in Minneapolis. It's got the attention of a lot of the country. Many people reeling after the death of George Floyd. There have been massive protests in Minneapolis. Video showed a Minneapolis police officer kneeling on the neck of a handcuffed black man who said he couldn't breathe and later died. It's another instance of a deadly encounter between police and an unarmed person of color. And this is an issue of profound importance to the community. Uh, Mike, how do you see the role, your role in this discussion as district attorney, and what can people expect from you when it comes to police accountability and the use of excessive force? Yeah, Laurel, first of all, like so many people in our community and across the country, um, it was devastating to watch this video. It was absolutely horrific. My, my heart and my thoughts go out to uh, George Floyd's family and, and the people uh, immediately impacted, but also communities that have been enduring this for not in the last couple month or so, but for hundreds of years. Uh, and so, you know, we have to acknowledge that, that this is not just an isolated incident. This has been happening for a long time. It, not even that long ago, we saw another horrific case of Ahmaud Aubrey. You know, as a district attorney, it's my role to make sure that the law applies to everybody. And, and I think that's what real officer and police accountability means, is that nobody is above the law, that the fix is not in, uh, and that the community can have trust in the district attorney's office to apply the law equally to everybody. So one of the first I want to do as district attorney is to invite the community in uh, into reviewing our current processes around how we handle these types of cases. 
uh, because we have to build trust and legitimacy that the district attorney is going to always apply the law equally to everybody. Uh, and so I think we have to let people voice their concerns and, and why it is that they think that that might not be happening and how can we improve that trust. I've called in this campaign uh, for outside or independent investigations of these things, uh, these types of incidents, so that the public can have trust that it's not just the prosecutors in Multnomah County who always work with the police officers in Multnomah County policing themselves. Uh, but that we actually have some independent voice coming in and reviewing these cases. I think that that could go a long way to restoring and building trust to the community that uh, the law is being applied equally to everybody. And this subject of social justice reform has gotten national attention, even some star power. Just before the election, John Legend tweeted about your election and, and encouraged people to vote for you. You and a number of DAs, uh, not only in Oregon, a couple of in Oregon, one in San Francisco, one in Harris County, Texas, another in Philadelphia, all ran and won on a promising reform. What does this say about the national conversation on criminal justice? Yeah, you know, I think that we're recognizing that, you know, what affects us in one community affects every community. And, and the George Floyd case is, is yet another horrific example of that, that I've had people already reaching out to me in our community about how this has impacted them. And so we're realizing that this is a national conversation that needs to be had. Yes, our local systems are, are different in a lot of ways, but there's also a lot of similarities. And there are all kinds of national conversations happening around uh, the death penalty, uh, cash bail, uh, mandatory sentencing. So those are some big theme policies that, that have cut across uh, our entire country. And so seeing DAs in different communities uh, run on these platforms to address those things, I think is a, is a fantastic opportunity because we get to not only learn from what from them and what's working in their community and their pitfalls and the things that they learn, and we can bring that back here to Multnomah County and try to make things and tailor it to, to what's right for our community. But the larger themes, uh, they do affect all of us across the country. And I think you know, we're seeing a broad recognition of that, not only on social media, but even in the entertainment industry as we see more and more uh, programs that are bringing up, you know, people who have been wrongfully convicted and wrongfully accused and with the proliferation of cell phones and, and capturing some of these really horrific images, we're realizing that this is a national conversation and it touches us all. You testified in favor of the new homeless services measure that passed on Election Day. And a large number of cases in the criminal justice system in Oregon involve people who are homeless, who may have mental health issues, addiction issues. Do you see this new measure helping in that regard? Do you see administrators possibly working with your office? I sure hope so, Laurel. Uh, you know, yes is the answer. And, and I look forward to working with them. I did. I testified in favor of this. Uh, I took opportunities throughout my campaign to campaign for this ballot measure. Uh, so I was incredibly grateful and gratified to see that it passed. Uh, you know, what I've seen at the state level when we've done analysis is that a small percentage of people take up a big percentage of our criminal justice resources. So we've seen that 9% of the people uh, who are arrested in a year take up 30% of our arrests, our booking events in our jails. I think what I would love to see from this ballot measure uh, is targeting resources at that smaller amount of people to get a bigger effect. To see that if we focus on the wraparound services that that 9% need, 
we can decrease booking events by 30%. That's a huge bang for our buck. And when we look at those people, we see their high need population, a lot of mental illness, a lot of addiction and co-occurring substance abuse disorders. Uh, so they're gonna need those kinds of sustained wraparound services that I think this ballot measure promises. So I'm very much uh, grateful to the voters and I hope to have a, a prominent role in working with them and how can we get this plugged into the criminal justice system. Just about 30 seconds left, but do you have a final message to leave with viewers? You know, I'm just so excited to, to dig into the work. You know, we're already starting to um, have some of the conversations about what a transition will look like. I'm grateful for the message that this sent. And I think it did send a very loud message, not only in Multnomah County, but across the state and across the country, that voters are ready to try some new things and that we can get better results uh, by changing some of the ways that we've been doing things. So I'm so grateful and excited to embrace this opportunity. And I look forward to working with the community and others uh, as we transition into office. District Attorney-elect Mike Schmidt, thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk and good luck to you. Thanks so much, Laurel. When we come back, we take a look at the Metro Homeless Services measure voters passed on Election Day. How will it help solve the homeless crisis? We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. Some considered the measure a wild card. During the middle of an unprecedented health and economic crisis, would voters really pass a $2.5 billion tax over 10 years to help people who are homeless? Voters in the Tri-County metro area surprised a lot of skeptics, saying yes, with close to 60% of the vote. Now what? How will the measure be put to work? How many people will it help? Joining me to answer those and other questions, welcome to my guest, Angela Martin, Interim Executive Director of Here Together, the coalition that crafted the measure, and Katrina Holland, Executive Director of JOIN. The nonprofit supports the efforts of individuals and families experiencing homelessness to transition into permanent housing. Welcome to Stray Talk. It's nice to have you both here. Oh, great to be here. Let's go, in my living room. Let's go back to, to election night and, and tell me, how surprised you were with the results and what does it say about the mood of voters? Let's begin with Angela. Uh, I wouldn't say surprised. It was really both thrilled and so proud. I'm so proud to be part of a community that made the decision to emerge from this uncertain time stronger and more united. So it was really a celebration for uh, the people of the community as well as obviously people experiencing homelessness. Katrina, what's the first order of business as you get ready to implement this measure? Well, you know, the first order of business is making sure that we start to develop and craft an implementation plan that, that really aligns with what was promised to voters, which is to make a substantial, meaningful change uh, in the homeless crisis that was prior to COVID-19 and that is likely going to get worse as a result of the economic fallout from COVID-19. So, you know, um, We'll be working closely hand in hand with uh, folks who help craft the measure, Metro and other stakeholders to develop what that's going to look like. Let's take a look at a few months, who, really. <laughs> who will pay for this tax. The tax will apply to individual filers with a taxable income of more than $125,000 or joint filers with taxable income of more than 200,000. Joint filers making 215,000 a year, for example, would be taxed 1% on 15,000 
or $150 a year. It also includes a business tax, a 1% tax on profits from businesses with gross receipts of more than $5 million. This measure has a 10-year sunset clause and was expected to generate $2.5 billion, but that was before the economic fallout from the pandemic and the, re the recession's impact on the estimate is unclear. So let's check with Angela. I mean, how much money do you think you'll be able to collect from this tax now that we have this economic recession? Right. That's certainly a question that needs to be answered and hasn't been answered uh, at this point. But let's keep in mind, this is a 10-year revenue stream. So for the short term, yes, we do expect uh, lower revenues. But over the long term, uh, we do anticipate close to the full amount. Katrina, one of the criticisms that opponents had was that it wasn't clear how many people would be helped out of homelessness by this tax. Can you give us a number? Yeah, that, you know, that's a really great question. And I think um, part of one of the nuances that uh, that is the sort of issue that we're trying to deal with, it's very human-centered. So what may work very well for one person doesn't necessarily work well for another person program methodology can vary widely across the system. Uh, what we can say for is that the folks who are on the ground dealing with this for the first time could be potentially looking at lessening the number of times we have to say no to them. So will it make a substantial difference in the number of people that we see on the streets? I think the answer is yes. What that exact number is really depends on the program methodologies um, that will be employed by the by the program service providers that are offering that program. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it goes to a deeper question, right? Which is, um, you know, will we will we be able to see or feel the impact of these investment dollars? And the answer to that is, yes. Angela, did you want to add anything? You know, uh, what I would add is that fulfilling the promise of this measure was always about delivering services to everyone experiencing homelessness. Before coronavirus, a conservative estimate of that number was 5,000 people. Our world has changed. So what Katrina is explaining is that we need to go back to the county levels, have them do the work of what is the new reality, and move forward from there. The good news is we have the plan, we have a process, and we finally have the resources to do the work we haven't been able to do. Angela, will people be able to see the difference? Will people see fewer people on the street? Is that how voters will know it's working? The Here Together Coalition prioritized delivering services to people experiencing chronic homelessness or what you see when you walk downtown and see someone in a tent in their car. So yes, that is, that is who this will primarily benefit. And we will change not only the, their lived experience, but the experience uh, of our community. Earlier on this show, Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt was our first guest, and he expressed a really deep hope that your group would work with the DA's office in connecting people with services, some of the people who are experiencing homelessness, who are in the criminal justice system, who may have mental health issues, addiction issues. Do you see some of the money working there, maybe integrating with the DA's office? Uh, Katrina, do you want to answer that? I, I, I mean, the baseline answer to that is absolutely. Um, what we know from uh, doing this work for many, many years at JOIN is reintegrating into society takes a long time um, and for some folks requires a different level of support than others. Um, and it, housing is one of the key 
resources that folks need to have readily access to in order to avoid recidivism or going back into behaviors that may have landed them there in the first place. But I also want to make sure we're addressing one quick point, which is that for a lot of the folks that we may see on the streets, because we've been addressing this this, this systemic issue very patchwork-like as opposed to at scale, there are many people who have been placed into the criminal justice system that really just needed services to help with their mental health issue or potential addiction or potential economic unrest that they may have uh, found themselves stumbling into as a result of a chronic condition or something like that. And so I think, you know, the baseline of what Mike Schmidt, I imagine, was talking about is making sure that we're better serving our community members with the services that they need, as opposed to finding a temporary place for them to sleep with punitive measures like a jail and instead placing them at home. And that's really critical. Another question people had uh, before this measure was passed was about accountability. Who's going to be accountable? Are we depending on the local governments to make sure this money is used wisely and efficiently? Uh, where's the oversight, uh, Angela? Accountability is at the heart of the governance framework that Here Together Coalition put together. We share that concern. We understand that a well-run program needs accountability at both the local level. So you will see local committees that are having to answer to a regional uh, oversight committee. Uh, this isn't just about elected officials, this is community partners, people with lived experience, people with experience dealing with and building programs uh, around mental health, behavioral health. So accountability is all of us participating uh, throughout the formation of the early plans to delivery of services onto the street. What about administrative costs? How much of every dollar will actually go to services? Mm -hmm. uh, critics also had a question about that. Katrina, can you speak to that? Yeah, so local, outlined in the uh, governance framework, local governments are limited to a 5% cap for administrative costs and that extends to Metro. Um, I'm not a numbers or a math person, so what that exact number actually looks like, I actually defer to Angela and some of the experts that helped to develop that. But administrative costs was one of the biggest concerns that came up in crafting this measure because we wanted to make sure that we were using the dollars effectively to make sure that they're getting on the street in as, in as, in as, in as complete form as possible to try to maximize the dollars that we're spending to get folks off the street and into permanent housing. We have under Instead two minutes left. Work. But I did want to ask uh, to go to Angela and ask if you wanted to comment on that and also if you, what else you wanted people to know about this measure. Absolutely. Well, it, it bears repeating. Uh, administrative costs must be kept to the minimum. So a 5% administrative cost uh, is a um, not a floor but a ceiling and built into the process is annual review of not only the program and the results but are local governments spending their administrative uh, dollars wisely and can we find a way to um, be more efficient? So very much a part of it. We need the money to get to people who need services. And Angela, do you have a final comment you'd like to share with viewers? We have about a minute left. You know, Portland has succeeded and our region has succeeded in doing what no other uh, city has done this far. And that is make a commitment to our most vulnerable and make a commitment to actually solving our chronic homeless crisis. That has gotten harder, not easier uh, in the last couple of months. But uh, I believe that if we um, are smart uh, with how we deploy the dollars, 
we keep transparency uh, at the center of this and keep accountability at the center of this, we will be able to fulfill that promise. And um, that is just a very exciting prospect for me. We should all be proud. And Katrina, just 30 seconds left. Uh, a final thought? Yeah, um, I w I'm really excited about this measure, and I think the public needs to be really excited about this measure because we're talking about investments at scale as opposed to patchwork and, quite frankly, systemic um, divestment that has occurred over the past several decades while experiencing significant We're so excited, and it's going to make a huge difference. Well, thank you, Angela Martin, Katrina Holland. Thank you very much, and good luck. Thanks for joining us here on Straight Talk. And thank you for watching and listening. Don't forget to download our new podcast. Here's a QR code that will take you right to a link where you can download it or get it wherever you get your podcast. Search for KGW Straight Talk. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Stay safe and have a great week.